Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the... Wow, let's try that again. Welcome to the Decoding Society. This is your host, D'Angelo Starnes. Today is Sunday, March 18, 2018, and um, I'm joined with by Chris Cathcart. How are you, Chris? Hey, what's up, D'Angelo? I'm good. All right, all right. So, you know, uh, I retired from drinking a few years ago, but even before that, I certainly retired from certain holiday drink, drinking. And the, the first one I think I retired from was St. Patrick's Day, which was yesterday. <laughs> so I don't know. Did, did you did you get out there and uh and uh, no and imbibe? No, 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 I don't. But I, I have I have fond memories of St. Patrick's Day, only in the sense that uh, I wasn't really hip to its intensity until I worked in the um, late '80s at CNN in New York, and CNN is at that time was right across the street from Madison Square Garden, and I remember every St. Patrick's Day just the and there's a lot of Irish bars around there. Man, just the mm. sheer number of people passed out on the street, uh, <laughs> the bars overflowing. I had never seen green beer before in my life until that day. And I think one day I went into one of the Irish bars with a cat I work with, and it was I had to. I had a lot of love for them because they sure as hell enjoyed themselves. I tell you that. And then they had the parade, which was always cool. But it was everything I celebrated per se. But I was always mindful of. It. Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> I, I retired. I went to one time. I went to uh, went grocery shopping at about eight eight thirty in the morning, and there was an Irish bar uh, pub around the corner from the grocery store. And I drove by and I said, "Oh shit, they're open." And I went in just for the hell of it, man, and left uh, about man. Uh, 11 o'clock. Yeah, left about 11 o'clock. <laughs> Hammered, man. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> the Jameson, what is that, Jameson that they drink? Uh, the, the Irish whiskey drink? Um, had yeah. Several of those shots. Yeah. I mean, listen, yeah, I, I, was, you know, I, it, I don't I, – I, it's always an interesting time of year because it always kind of marks the um, – to me, that's always like the gateway to springs. I know when uh, when yeah. St. Patrick's Day is coming around, you're only a few weeks away from – you know, living in L.A., it ain't as much because you don't see the seasons change as much as you did living in D.C. and New York, but that's what it reminds me of. So, power to them. Yeah, no, nah, man, it's all good. I, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um but in any event, man, and then we got a, you know, it's always that time of year, March Madness. Um, you doing bra- you do brackets? No, you know, I stopped doing them a while ago because I don't follow enough. Um, like, I, you know, I'm a Georgetown fan, so I watch their games. And right. I watch some of the, you know, when some of the heavyweights play, when UNC plays North Carolina, I watch that game, Michigan, Ohio State. And so I didn't know enough about it. A lot of the teams, some of these Cinderella teams, like University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I mean, I that was a bananas that game. And I, because I picked, yeah. I had Virginia. I did see Virginia's games a few times. I thought Virginia at least get to the sweet, uh, the final eight. Right. But, uh, right. So no, I didn't do brackets, but I enjoyed. I, I sometimes do it. I'm working. I just cut the games on. Just the background noise is cool, you know. But I, I plan to watch. Yeah. It today. 
Okay, yeah, I did. Um, I did. I did brackets. I, I'm 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 like some of these rich white dudes. I hedge, so I do about uh, ten brackets. Um, I had a UVA and a couple, but that was because I went against what I saw. I didn't watch a lot of games, but I caught snippets. Like you, you know, you have on the games in the background. I caught snippets here and there. I kind of peeped that UVA was a really good team, but, you know, come crunch time, they didn't have a closer. Uh, Then I listened to the people in the Disney sports networks, uh, you know, all-time defense and all this, and went against my, 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 my eyes so to speak. Um, I did cheat um, prior to filling out my brackets. I listened to these uh, a podcast with these two cats, these sports writers. They, they're college hoops geeks. And they, they called a lot of those upsets. They called Marshall. They called Loyola Chicago. Um, they were wrong on a few, but they, they, they kind of peaked. Uh, they peaked the Arizona was having problems. They said Arizona uh, was um, – they just looked like a team that didn't like playing together. Um, oh, wow. That was another one that I went against. <laughs> because I was like, I think Arizona's really good. They might pull it together. But anyway, but uh, I have a few I'm cool in, but that UBA blew me up. It looked pretty good. But if, you know, um, the thing about March Madness, the thing about March Madness, and I think this may touch on some of the topics of the show, is that I think it gets lost on us how these amateurs, these non-played athletes, the money yeah. they generate for the networks, for college sports, for the NCAA. I mean, it, I don't even know if you can quantify it properly, the amount of money that's being generated, because well, we got games on TNT, TBS, True TV, CBS. Mm-hmm. Um, you got merchandise. You, I mean, it, just, and then think of all these athletes who none of them are paid. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm advocating for or against paying um, college athletes. I'm just saying – March more than the more than the national championship football game. That's a one off, right? Think yeah. about all yeah. that's being generated by all of this. I'm glad you did that. Does kind of lead into to what the financial component of what we're talking about because that is, I mean, how many stories do you even see about that? Like you said, I mean, um, you might see it on outside the lines or something like that, but. You know, they generate billions of dollars, and then you know, uh, and they're not paid. And then if they accept, uh, you know, a, you know, some uh, a, a meal from a you know somebody, a booster, so to speak, if they uh, take a ride uh, from booster, but you know, or even cash, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, they could should be paid. But like you said, let's just look at it for what it is then, you know, that player could lose his eligibility, that program gets in trouble. Um, it's a big, what do they call it, the cartel. Um, well, the, really, the, and the, you the name are that, the layers. Go ahead. The, the, but the thing, too, is that the um, the argument against that is that these these privileged athletes are, you know, getting this, this national platform, then they will parlay that into – professional careers and make millions of dollars. But the reality is that most of those kids you see playing, yo, hey, yeah, most of those nah. kids you see playing aren't going pro. Most of them, no. the vast majority nah. of the, the, the athletes you see doing the NCAA tournament will not ever play in the NBA. The vast, vast, yeah. vast majority of them. 
Uh, you do the math. Then the I mean, question becomes, what, what percentage goes pro? When they say 1% of all college athletes go pro, so take that out. And what percentage may play yeah. in Greece or Israel or Lithuania or someplace else? And take right. those out. Science. Then the next question is, well, what yeah. percentage will graduate with functional degrees? Do you remember, you remember Emerge, right? The magazine, Emerge? George Curry. Yeah. George Curry. I'm, 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 yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember. They they used to do a thing called the bottom 100. And um, and the bottom 100 was the 100 schools with the lowest graduation rate of these NCAA teams. And they did it for football and they did it for basketball annually. And it was amazing how many of the bottom 100 were in the NCAA tournaments. Not amazing, but – you know, you match to what you just said. So these these kids, I mean, they because of the the the, the high the high profile nature of you know them being displayed and exhibited in these games in the, with with a lot of money attached. It's a job for them, so they're not going to class, and and they're being you know fooled into thinking, like you said, that they're going pro to make millions of dollars, and so it's. It's no wonder that the, the, the graduation rates were, were so poor. Um, right. But yeah, I wish they I wish they do that again. I wish somebody would do it. Maybe I, you know, there's well, an opportunity it's, there. It's, you know, it, it's having the trickle down effect because, and I know this is off topic, but it's having the trickle down effect no, because ahead. now you have you have with these travel ball leagues where you have these you know young teenagers, even eleven, twelve yeah. through their uh, early teens participate in these travel ball leagues, they have basically replaced high schools as the filler system for these frontline basketball programs. So now right. you have now you have young kids, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, who, who in these travel ball leagues, not attached to co- high schools, who are essentially being recruited out of those leagues to play at college. With with the con with the idea, not so much of them getting an education per se, but them being able to come and contribute to this program. So that so that so arguably the exploitation now begins way before freshman year at some institution. Mm. You know, it may begin at, at middle school, to be quite honest, because now the travel ball league. Now, I probably catch a lot of hell from people who listen to these podcasts who support me, which a lot of people do. They've replaced <laughs> high right. school as a feeder system. They've re- they replaced high school. They play year-round. It's not about what you did in high school anymore. It's about how you, what travel ball league you were on, how well you did, who, who your competition was. A lot of these kids are being held back a year so they could play a year down. Um, wow. There's just a lot going on. That a lot go- So I'm just saying that the, the whole pageantry of March Madness if you if you look just past the surface, there's a lot going on there um, beyond just the competition itself. The pageantry, I like that. I like that. So, okay, let me just die. I could, I, that, you kind of blew my mind because I was already like, I was thinking about Ben Simmons, you know, who said, I'm not going to class, but I know I'm going pro. But it starts before that, you said. You got kids in middle school who uh, are you saying that they're bypassing class or they're not taking even high no, school? What happened these, no, they're, no, they're still in school. They're still in school but their participation on the high school, junior high school and high school teams isn't the thing anymore. The thing now is these travel ball leagues. So there's these leagues uh, year round. 
that you participate in for 12 and under, 13 and under, 15 and whatever it is. And so you play on these leagues, and you have teams in California who play all over the state, in the Arizona, in the Nevada, go as far away as Florida or D.C. or Baltimore or New York for, for tournaments. And and now I, my little brother through the Big Brothers program was playing on one, so I went to a couple of his games last year, and the college recruiters are at these things now. So I'm saying oh, that, wow. that when you move it outside of the high school, junior high school, high school environment, at least under the high school, to me, this is my personal opinion. I can't back this up with fact. This is sure. my personal opinion. You move it out of the high school environment, at least from the high school environment, there is some pretense to academic rooting. Fundamentally, I could having them go to class and know that they have to, they have to be in class to participate on the team. I remember when I played – high school sports, football, baseball, whatever, you had to have a decent grade point average to participate on the team. When now you have the students who are good athletes, particularly in basketball, and baseball has traveled too, now participating on these travel teams, they're not rooted in academic basis. You just, you don't, it, you, they may have some criteria, but you have to be in school and in good standing, but it's separate from the, from the schools. And so the college recruitment process now is not so much how well you did at Dunbar High School or Boys and Girls High School or Malcolm X Shabazz in North. Now it's about how well you did in your travel ball league. So by the time you get to college, the type of exploitation that may take place in college, if you can call it that, and once again, we can argue back and forth, it now begins much sooner is what I'm saying. Got you. Got you. The, 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 I take it these teams because you're talking about them traveling. They're uh, they're sponsored, right? Financially. Yeah, often or the you know, the, or the, and then the parents, you know, the parents raise money and contribute money. And you got to pay to participate in tournaments. The 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 equipment, even for basketball, which you think would be bare minimal, but the shoes, the compression socks, and the right type of gear. That's that's those prices have gone through the roof. So. Parents end up making substantial financial investments way before the kid gets to college, way before the kids get to senior year in high school. To be honest, damn. So I'm just, I just, I just brought all up that to say, cause, you know, just the March Madness is just so dominant now, but there's so many other wheels turning as this thing happens that I think we should have some pay at least some passing attention to. No, that's that's awesome, man. That. That's good, man. That's good stuff right there. That, you know, I, it was kind of a throwaway type of getting warmed up <laughs> to the podcast, but you you, you opened it up, and so uh, and you're right, absolutely right. Because we don't look at it. we get we get we get kind of caught up in the home. and not that this isn't some you know for sports for sports sake that it's not some some you know worthy. Uh, Viewing pleasure, at least, so you know to watch the competition. That that's not to take away from that and what these kids, how hard they work, and you know how skilled no, no, they make. Yeah. Hey man, I, I'm not I'm not being a hypocrite. I, I'm looking forward to watching some games. I think uh, Syracuse. I teach a class with Syracuse. Syracuse plays Michigan State today. I plan to watch that. I I watch, but I'm just saying that that there are other things at work that we should think about and at least discuss. And I think they do, you know, I think, I know, like you said, outside the lines and ESPN has talked about this many times, but I just think that it, every time I see these games and you turn to two and three channels and they got games on wall to wall, I'm like, man, just all that money being generated. I yeah. Mean, there's, there's billions of dollars being generated. And then by the time yeah. we get to the final eight, the sweet 16, the final eight, the final four, 
Yeah. And it ain't like the football. Football is the same way, but football, you basically have a few games. Now you're talking about churning out game after game after game after game. And that's a lot. Yeah. Into that. Yeah. 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 And then, um, you know, it brings to mind, too, when you talk about all the money that's being churned out, you know, in terms of merchandising. And uh, I recall a few years ago, Ed O'Bannon, who uh, was a basketball player for the yeah, don't UCLA. Know, uh, UCLA filed a lawsuit against, I think it was EA Sports. Say, hey, you're making money off my likeness. I, I didn't give you permission for that, and you owe me. And uh, I think he got a settlement because he was close to winning that one uh, if he yeah, did I can't not win remember, it. But I think just for your listeners, I think it was that they put out a, a, a video game about different colleges playing each other, and they actually used real players from those eras, and he was one of them. Right, right. Right, and making money off of him, he's not getting oh, a dime from. Yeah, yeah. So that, and that's a, and then that goes back to. Uh, I don't know if folks had an opportunity to watch. Um, I know you did. Um, There's an outstanding. Uh, I think it was thirty for thirty. Uh, did a piece on the Fab Five: uh, Chris Webber, Juwan Howard, Jalen Rose, uh, right. Ray McKnight. Uh, I forgot the other guy's name. Um, but what are the, so they were, you know, five, five for people that don't recall is Michigan started, a, a was one of teams that started all freshmen and these guys were like the top freshmen in, in, in the nation. And, um, and they went to the finals and it, they were a great team. They were a dynamic space age team. I was thinking at the time. Uh, but one of the things that they noticed as they were, uh, and they were treated like rock stars, <laughs> when they would go to games and stuff. And well, one thing they noticed as they were traveling was that people would have their jerseys on, and and they were broke. They were broke, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't right. eat, you know. And they're like, people walk around my with my name on their jersey that they pay for. I'm not getting a royalty on that or anything. So um, there's that, you know. And so, it goes, you know, and the the whole notion of the, the pushback on that and – you hear it often, and like you said, we're not here to to get into that debate about paying, not paying, but, but taking it for what it is. Because you know, you do hear people say, "Well, these guys get to go to college that's expensive for free," um, which is not quite accurate. Um, they may get a scholarship, but those are one-year scholarships. They have to be renewed. Um, uh, some of the kids that play, uh, if they're not on scholarship, the medical expenses may not be paid if they get injured. If they get injured, they lose the scholarship, um, and they don't have medical benefits, uh, and they're not in school. Um, uh, so the trade-off is not, you know, and then even if you did look at, well, that's tuition that the school's not getting from that student because he's on scholarship, because we're carrying him on scholarship, match that against how much money that particular player is generating for that school. And not just the school, but not just the team, but the the school, the school's athletic department. Go ahead. And not just that, but the NCAA, the conference that the school is in. I mean, it's not just that school. That school benefits, the conference that the school is in benefits, NCAA as an organization overall. Benefits, 
the merchandise. And, if you know, you're going to go out and buy University of Michigan. I mean, think about how much money is generated by Duke University, North Carolina University, Michigan, um, UCLA, just the jerseys being sold. Yeah. If you just think about the merch. If just the merch. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, I think, interestingly, you know, that ties into a topic I know you wanted to address, which I'm not an expert on, but just the, the, the still racist doling out of mortgages. If you look at how one right. segment of our community is exploited for billions, right. <laughs> and then right. maybe their parents or aunts and uncles or cousins are systematically denied opportunities for home ownership, which is the basis, essentially, for American generational wealth. That that comparison, young black kids mostly exploited during mm-hmm. their college years for billions, but their aunts and uncles and cousins and mothers and fathers denied historically access to government. I mean, bank loans to buy yeah. homes. Those those right. things laid next to each other are stark in comparison to each other. You know. Well, then, then then that explains too. You know, just to tie those two together, that explains so when the college comes knocking. And says, well, well, we'll give you, we'll, we'll help you, we'll help your mom move close to the house, to, to the, to the university, or, you know, if they give them cash, some financial assistance to pay for their housing. Oh, then, then the kid gets in trouble, and and the school gets in trouble, you know, and so, and then why do kids try so hard to to get out of out of the what the quote ghetto? By playing, you know, devoting all their time to basketball to the exclusion of, of going to class because of these housing situations. So, so let's dive into that because and then probably will um, be a multi uh, episode because actually this is a continuation of, of a previous episode we did uh, about gentrification. So um, Recently, the uh, the the so what Chris was talking about. There's actually an outstanding series on um, uh, that's put out by this um, group called the Center for Investigative Reporting Reveal, and uh, it's a series called Kept Out, and um, and basically uh, it it starts off with the premise with uh, how a gaping loophole in a landmark law is fueling gentrification. And I'll just read from the the lead paragraph. Uh, Quote, since banks constricted credit immediately after the 2008 housing bust, they they have been slowly increasing the amount they're lending. But this economic prosperity has not reached everyone. Reveals year-long analysis of 31 million mortgage records found that in 61 metro areas across the country, people of color are denied loans at disproportionately higher rates than white Africans, and so uh, they. Uh, so you go into the uh, the next uh, article in that series, and it's titled, and this is from RevealNews.org, February 16, 2018, by Aaron Glantz and Emmanuel Martinez. And the title is Gentrification Became Low-Income Lending Law's Unintended Consequence. And I'm going to read this opening paragraph because it's going to fuck you up. (laughs) Go ahead. Jonathan Jacobs. Okay. (laughs) I'm saying it's not just for you, but this is for everybody. No, I got you. I got you. 
Jonathan Jacobs had almost no savings, a modest income, and a credit report marred by a disputed cell phone bill. But he easily bought a newly renovated row house in Point Breeze, a South Philadelphia neighborhood that's historically African-American. He says, it took about 15 minutes to fill out the paperwork. Now I pay less to own a house than I did to rent in an apartment. Jacobs, who is white, got a special home loan from New Jersey-based TD Bank that is designed to help low-income people and blighted neighborhoods where banks are required to lend under the landmark Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. The law was designed to correct the damage of redlining, a now illegal practice in which the government warned banks away from neighborhoods with high concentrations of immigrants and African Americans. African Americans. But, but the law didn't anticipate a day when historically black neighborhoods would be sought out by young white home buyers. So instead of lending to the longtime black residents of Point Breeze, most of the loans are going to white newcomers such as Jacobs. Okay, so then they go on to talk about, you know, this this uh, this thing. So I'm going to skip ahead. White newcomers get the edge. In Point Breeze, signs of gentrification abound. White homebuyers stretch at a new yoga studio and brunch at a Zagat-rated bistro where the grilled cheese costs $11.95 and includes shaved apples. <laughs> grilled cheese, okay. On a Sunday morning in front of the yoga studio, uh, Julia Bringhurst talks talks real estate with her friends. Bringhurst, 49, who is white, works as an employee benefits manager at Morgan Lewis and Bacchus LLP, one of the biggest law firms in the city. She bought a Point Breeze home in 2013 when the gentrification there was just getting underway. Banks meet their community reinvestment obligations by marketing affordable loan products to neighborhood newcomers who typically are able to get a conventional mortgage with 3% down payment compared with the industry's gold standard of 20%. So she said that Ben Brinker says she made lenders compete for her business. This woman's white now. She made lenders compete for her business. You kind of sit there and push them around a little bit. Um, it was easy. Once you get a little money, it's really easy to lot make a lot more. And this is a quote from a gentleman who bought a row house, and he got such a good deal on it that he picked up four more properties with just a few thousand dollars down, and now he's not only a homeowner, but now he's a landlord in that same neighborhood. Um, Jonathan Jacobs. Bank, TD Bank offered an even more attractive deal. They waived costly mortgage insurance requirements for low down payment loans. The bank's right step loan, which is offered to meet its obligations under the Community Reinvestment Act, is available to anyone seeking to buy in a low-income neighborhood, regardless of how much money that person makes. But government data analyzed by Reveal, independently and reviewed and confirmed by the Associated Press, shows Black and Latino borrowers have a tougher time getting loans under this under the under the same program. 
the data showed that TD Bank denied a larger percentage of African American and Latino Africans than any other big U.S. bank in 2015 and 16. They turned away 54% of African Americans trying to buy homes, 45% of Latinos. Um, and this is the same bank that waived mortgage requirements and, and the woman, you know, making people compete for her. Now, to, to not read. Uh, no, read too much more because I, I know we're going to be uh, moving out of time. Let me skip ahead in the article where it talks about in the same article it talks about in these neighborhoods the houses became dilapidated and uh, and because there was very little investment in neighbor. Well, let's just put it like this: the houses became dilapidated over a period of time. You know, roofing and and plumbing and whatnot. The homeowners, black homeowners. Sought loans, to, sought home improvement loans to you know fix their shit up, but they were denied the same loans that people were getting to buy their homes. The same lenders that were denying, same lenders who were giving people money to buy these homes were denying those black residents home improvement loans so that they could keep their houses. So uh, so that kind of is uh, the beginning of, of gentrification in one sense. Um, there's a, a, a companion article uh, for people of color, banks are shutting the door to home ownership. So in this particular article, a uh, young sister was uh, tried to get a home. She had $60,000 a year job. Um, uh, she uh, applied for a loan numerous times, was denied, and when her uh, her her partner, um, she's gay. But when her female partner, who's half Asian, half white, uh, signed co-signed on the loan, they got the loan. Now, her co- her co-signer was a grocery store worker that made seventy-two dollars a week. You tell me what's going Dude, on in that particular case. Bro, I mean. You, you. I read some. I know you. You know, people probably know we try to do a little background. I was reading some of that stuff, and it's, it was disheartening, but not surprising. I mean, what else can yeah. it be but subtle forms, of, subtle and not so unsubtle forms of racism? If, if yeah. I, you know, that the, one of the statistics, I, you know, some of the information we read was like the, the disparity between white home ownership and black home ownership is as wide as it's been since the Jim Crow era, right now. Yeah. Uh, and 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 what what this brings to mind a couple of things. One is that we, when when those of us who advocate for justice and equality and all those nice words, it's not so much trying to confront Nazis in Charlottesville. It's about institutionalized mm. racism and racialized policies that affect not the individual who may have a brick thrown at him, God forbid that happens, or the one who gets called the N-word, nigger, whatever, God forbid that. It's the generational impact of something like this. Was yes. A city like Philadelphia, Philadelphia, which most of us think if black folk ain't got a leg up, we just got a leg even, right? <laughs> not a leg up, a leg <laughs> even. Right? To realize that Philadelphia – Philadelphia is one of the leading cities where it's hard for people of color to get decent home mortgage loans. It's it's crazy. And the yeah. watering down of uh, the Dodd-Frank um, yeah. and stripping away any of the teeth from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, we, you know, we're living in precarious times. And, we, you know, we, 
don't look at the guy behind the the the, the, the fascination on Trump's foolishness, taking people's eye yeah. off the ball from very serious shit that's happening like this that is happening with the compliance of Democrats. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was where we were leading to. Yeah. Dodd Frank. So you you it's gonna get harder it's gonna become harder to get at that kind of data. Um uh to to a for people to to file charges against uh, lending institutions for dis- based on a, a loan discrimination, but because this Dodd Frank bill, which was supposed to have um, reformed some of the transgressions that were happening, uh, trend, you know, some of the practices that were happening on Wall Street, um, th- that's being watered down so that one of the requirements is that. I mean, one of the um, one of the things that it did was to uh, to exempt banks um, from having to make uh, reports uh, of of the to, from having to track uh, people that apply for mortgages and and, and keep track of, of race uh, the race of the people that apply and, and ironically um, one of the, one of the uh, one of the one of the requirements to receive that exemption is to receive a successful um, community reinvestment act uh, rating. <laughs> we just see what's happening under the community reinvestment act because if if the if if a bank is is making you know loans uh, to lower income people, that's really the, the the requirement under the community reinvestment act is to, is that the bank is loaning to people. Uh, with low incomes, regardless of race, um, so they're going to get a high rating under the Community Reinvestment Act, and therefore be exempt from reporting on the the race and gender and and and, and what not, and national origin of the applications mm-hmm. for for mortgages. So you know it's kind of a loop to kind of, to, to keep us shut out. You know, and and so well, you, you know, know that that in the. Uh, but, Something else I found interesting was this whole reliance on the credit score, which you know, I, I believe me, I'm not one to wow. get out of the perch and start arguing. But but how that does not take into account people's consistent, certain individuals' consistency in making payments like rent and utilities and phone bills, which made me really think right. that the, the credit score rating may be such a it, it, it may be kind of a sleight of hand way to just kind of discount people out of hand from getting more mortgages or quality loans, whether it be for cars or student loans or whatever it is because it's some antiquated way or maybe contrived antiquated way of determining who is a solid investment and who isn't to extend the loan to. Because I agree with that. I mean, if you, if you have people out here who are regularly pay, paying the, 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 the most important bills in their lives, their rent, their phone, yeah. their utility, that should be taken into consideration as opposed to somebody who defaulted on a credit card or something else like that. So that there was a lot in this. There's a lot of layers of this that, that go beyond just a casual view. But the reality is that the, the, the gap between African-American wealth and white Americans' wealth in this country is wide and growing, and that's not being addressed. So this whole yes. thing about becoming a more multicultural I mean, multicultural, multi-dynamic country, but at, but when there is a concentration of wealth that overly tilts on one side than the other, then what will that lead to? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 almost, it, it, it almost, I don't want to sound apocalyptic. I don't want to sound apocalyptic, but becoming more diverse and multicultural 
while at the same time become more um, disproportionately um, wealthy as opposed to impoverished, can necessarily lead to an apartheid state as far as I'm concerned because that's where you will go. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, if, if the means, yeah, if said, all the yeah. concentration of wealth and means to, to, to make things happen in society concentrated in the smaller pockets, I think that can necessarily lead to, if not a political apartheid, definitely an economic apartheid, which basically sets the foundation for a political apartheid. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, that's interesting that you brought that up because from back in your neck of the woods in New York, they had a meeting. Uh, I was listening to the Black Agenda Report. I think it was from this past week. Uh, and they had a meeting about this very topic. And they said that, that this is what this is leading to. And they said we need to, and, and, and it was a point made that uh, do away with the term gentrification and, and begin to call it what they, they said, ethnic cleansing. Um, <laughs> because you're moving people out of these neighborhoods. Hey, they, they would go hard, bro. So um, I, it was interesting. I don't know if I'm very quite ready to do that, but there was some merit to how to the analysis that led to that conclusion. Um, let me let me before I forget just on that credit score. I, so when they when when you hear institutions or yeah in this instance institutions or people who are being accused of being discriminatory when they use this this. Uh, colorless, non-discriminatory lingo like, well, it's not it has anything to do with your race it has to do with the, the credit score well, you know, like right. you just pointed out that that in and of it how that credit score is measured is it can be discriminatory as well and it can have a discriminatory impact let me let me point this out that's that article, uh, the first article that I quoted from uh, later in, in uh, later on in the piece it points out that that when they re, when they examine those uh, 31 million records, was it 61? 31 million bank records. One thing that they could not get at was the credit scores of the people that were denied loans, and the and the bank yeah, refused to turn they, that they over. Yeah, public information, right? Yeah, that's, so we don't even know if credit scores. Maybe some of those the non-white people that got denied had credit scores that were better than. Than the, than, than the white applicants. So we, even, even using that, even that non-discriminatory reason may have been bullshit because they didn't reveal the information to show that that was actually uh, not a reason. So anyway, um, to be continued, because I do want to get into uh, this, this, like you said, you know, uh, this topic of, this, this financial topic of, of, of the push, you know, it seems like to Neil serfdom and you're pointing out, you know, it could create, you know, <laughs> somewhat of an apartheid state. I know people get a little, little squeamish about that, but, you know, you look at the reality. Because, uh, you know, along with uh, being pushed out of our neighborhoods and, and into homelessness and to uh, poverty, um, then you got, you know, this resurgence of debtors, and, and 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 it's not quite that, but it's a different scheme, and we'll get into that on our next uh, show. Uh, but we do want folks to check out uh, that those two articles that reveal series. I also want to uh, point out uh, an article that um, I came across that we didn't get to. Uh, it's 
called How Obama Destroyed Black Wealth. Um, it's oh, by wow. Matt Brunick and Ryan Cooper. Uh, I'll send you, Chris, the the, uh, the link. Um, but no, I love to read Obama, that. That sounds, uh, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, they, they go into HAMP, the the home um, home affordable mortgage program, and and how when black people were starting to lose their homes during the foreclosure crisis. Well, it talks about the whole that whole scheme. I mean, so how we got to the point where people are losing their homes. And 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 how we got to the gentrification part has a history, so uh, we'll hopefully tackle that uh, next time. But um, I want to thank Chris Cascart uh, and um, and uh, for his uh, uh, insight today. And uh, catch you guys next week. Uh, please check out and subscribe uh, to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, if you'd be so kind to leave us a rating and or a review, good or bad, let us know what you like, what you didn't like, and how we can improve uh, or what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, thanks so much, Chris, and uh, we'll catch you next Daniel. time, bro. I enjoyed it, man. All right. Take care. Yes, sir. All right. Peace. Peace.